Well, good morning. I want to welcome everybody to Cato, all of you here uh, in the Hayek Auditorium, everybody who's joining us streaming online, and those who are following along on Twitter using hashtag homes and schools. If you're on Twitter, hashtag homes and schools. I am Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Uh, today we'll be discussing the nexus of housing, race, and education, which I think is a crucial discussion, especially given recent strained racial relations, the civic mission of public education, and the effects of housing policies that have sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally segregated housing and hence public schools. Uh, it is my pleasure now to introduce our moderator, who uh, just as easily could be a featured speaker, speaker in his own event, Gerard Robinson. Uh, Gerard is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he works on education policy issues, including choice in public and private schools, implementation of K-12 standards, innovation in for-profit educational institutions, and the role of community colleges and historically black colleges and universities in adult advancement. Before joining AEI, Robinson served as Commissioner of Education for the State of Florida and Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Virginia. As president of the Black Alliance for Educational Options, Robinson worked to ensure that children in low-income and working-class families in several states in the District of Columbia were given the opportunity to attend good schools. Throughout his career, he has evaluated the effects of reform initiatives on parental choice and student achievement, advocated for laws to improve delivery of teaching and learning, and published essays on how to make good policy to give all children a chance at a good job and future. A proponent of the importance of education in civil society, Robinson has spoken before audiences in the United States, China, and the United Kingdom. Robinson started his career by teaching fifth grade in a private inner city school. He is a member of many education-related boards. His issue brief for the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools was cited in an amicus brief presented before the Supreme Court of Georgia in 2013. Robinson has a Master of Education from Harvard University, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Philosophy from Howard University, and an Associate of Arts degree from El Camino College. And with that, Gerard, it's all yours. Good morning. It's always great to return to the Cato Institute. Um, ten year, over, little ten years ago, I was here for another presentation uh, dealing with a similar issue of race and education. And on the panel were two people uh, Dr. Rod Page and uh, Dr. Howard Fuller. Uh, obviously, they liked my presentation so much that Dr. Fuller uh, provided me a very great inter uh, fellowship at Marquette University, and I had a chance to meet with Dr. Rod Page in his office, and lo and behold, I met a young lady in his office who's now my wife, and three children later, uh, things have worked out. So I always like to tell people, the Cato Institute and the Libertarians, you're okay with me. So good to be here. Uh, Sixty years ago, Brown v. Two, uh, Brown v. Board of Education II was decided, and we said with all deliberate speed, we needed to move from a segregated school system to a desegregated school system. We know today that in 2015, levels of segregation in schools and in houses are still alive. There have been some very interesting conversations lately, uh, looking at what took place in Ferguson, what took place recently in Baltimore. But the question for us today is to look at education, to look at housing, and to look at race, and to figure out what exactly can we do to try to make schools more integrated, but also pushing forward for quality results in schools. 
but also to make sure that housing uh, is a factor that we put into place. Uh, we're fortunate to have three people here today who will talk to us about that. Uh, the first will be Dr. Rothstein. Uh, he is a research associate at the uh, Economic Policy Institute. Uh, he uh, has a number of careers and ideas, but in particular, he worked for the New York Times as an education reporter. I had an opportunity to read his paper about St. Louis uh, and the role that government policy has played often in promoting uh, segregation in housing. And he's going to provide a very good overview of what role uh, that will take place, housing and how does it impact education. Uh, next, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Danielson, who is a professor, uh, associate professor at North Carolina State uh, University. He, uh, his father, in fact, was an economics professor, so he's in the tradition of also being a professor. Uh, he's one of the few scholars in the country and the first where I've had an opportunity to read his work where he's looked at charter schools and housing and how are families deciding to move to certain neighborhoods and what role will school choice play. He's done that for charter schools, but he's also looked at vouchers, uh, particularly in Vermont, uh, one of the two states with uh, two of the oldest voucher programs in the country. And so he's going to talk about the role that school choice will play in helping either integrate housing or if we can't integrate housing, what role can school choice play in advancing educational opportunity for students in the schools that they attend, and particularly as it relates to housing value. Uh, next, of course, we've got um, uh, uh, Dr. Um, Kuski, who is the director of the center here. Uh, our paths have crossed in a previous life doing school choice work. He's one of the top scholars in the country as it relates to school-based choice, particularly the idea of universal choice, what it means for families, and what it means for children. It's uh, not ironic that we would have this conversation in Washington, D.C., a city with uh, a three-sector model, vouchers, charters, traditional public schools, a school that also, a city that also at one time where many African Americans were unable uh, to find housing in the nation's capital, and yet today we've seen a major shift in the demography of this city. So that also influences education. Uh, but again, the Supreme Court made the decision. Uh, 60 years ago in Brown v. 2 uh, Board of Education, and we need to look at uh, what we're going to do. So as we talk about race, housing, and education, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Uh, Rothstein. We'll then go to Dr. Danielson. We'll end with Dr. McCluskey. I'll have a few questions for all of them, and then we will open it up for a Q&A. So with that, turn over to Dr. Rothstein. Thanks very much. If I ever get back, invited back to the Cato Institute, I'll also be able to say it's great to be back here. Um, but this is my first time. Um, Brown versus Board of Education, the, the desegregation case that you mentioned, attributed the achievement gap to the fact that segregated schools give black children a feeling of inferiority that is difficult to overcome. Uh, that may or may not be the case. Um, I think there are many more important reasons why uh, we cannot close the achievement gap in segregated schools. The major cause of the achievement gap, the major causes of the achievement gap lie in the preparation that children come to school with their ability to take advantage of what even good schools have to offer. When you have a child who comes to school uh, from a family where parents are poorly educated, that child won't have been read to as much when young. Uh, that child will hear less sophisticated vocabulary in the home. That child will uh, absorb lower 
educational expectations. Uh, that child is likely to have parents whose friends are also poorly educated and will not have a lot of role models of college-educated uh, adults. So that child's achievement in school is going to be lower on average. It's not to say there aren't always going to be exceptions. Uh, there's a wide distribution of uh, achievement for any individual characteristic. And uh, some children who come from less literate homes will always achieve at higher levels than typical children who come from more literate homes. But on average, uh, it's almost a matter of logic that children who come to school with less educational advantages are going to achieve at lower levels than children who come to school with more educational advantages. There are many of these social and economic conditions that predict low achievement. If a child moves frequently, uh, that child is less likely to have teachers who know him or her well. Uh, if a child has uh, more serious uh, childhood illnesses that are treated less well, has less adequate uh, health care, uh, that child is going to be absent from school more and less able to take advantage of what schools have to offer. Again, a child with asthma, for example, may very well achieve at higher levels than a typical child without asthma. But on average, children who are absent more because of, abs of asthma are inevitably going to achieve at lower levels than children who are present in school all the time because they don't have this particular characteristic. Now, that's the, the way in which we predict the uh, achievement of individual students. If that child goes to an integrated school, a school that's a middle-class school, uh, teachers can pay special attention to that child, and that child may be more likely to achieve at the level of children without those disadvantages. But when you concentrate children in schools who have less literate parents, who live in a community that's full of stress because of greater violence, who move frequently because of inadequate housing, or because their parents fall behind in, in the rent, whose parents are more likely to be unemployed and therefore uh, have stresses in the home from that, for that reason, who, who have less adequate health care uh, and are therefore like, less likely to be present in school. When you concentrate children in schools with those characteristics, obviously teachers cannot pay special attention to each individual child. The level of instruction inevitably declines. Uh, instruction becomes much more typically remedial, uh, less uh, on grade level. Uh, children who come to school in great stress, if they're concentrated in single classrooms, are more likely to have discipline problems and more time is spent on discipline and on instruction. So the concentration of children with these social and economic disadvantages is one of the more important predictors of low achievement. In other words, we cannot close the achievement gap in segregated schools. Now, I'm not going to get into much. I think the other speakers here today will get into whether uh, choice and other options can overcome segregation. But I think uh, it's undeniable that in many of the largest uh, uh, metropolitan areas in this country, the ghettos in which uh, highly disadvantaged African-American children live are too far distant from truly middle-class communities to make uh, choice or magnet schools or uh, changes in school boundaries a meaningful uh, way to address uh, school segregation. The only way to address school segregation for the many children, perhaps most children, who live in highly uh, 
concentrated ghettos in metropolitan, larger metropolitan areas in this country is by residential desegregation. And so I began to look several years ago at why um, our residential areas uh, uh, in this country are uh, so highly segregated. Is it because people choose to live with one another uh, of similar race or ethnicity? This event got started when I had an exchange, an email exchange with Neil about whether uh, uh, people's preferences to live with each other of similar race or ethnicity was an important cause of, of segregation. Is it because African-American families are too poor to afford housing in uh, middle-class communities? Is it because uh, when they do attempt to move to middle-class communities, they, uh, they face the discriminatory treatment by real estate agents or by neighbors? What is the reason? And it doesn't take much of an examination to discover that the segregation of our major metropolitan areas all of the things I just described may play a small role, but the segregation of our major metropolitan areas in this country today was created by explicit racially conscious public policy on the part of the federal, state, and local governments. We have all absorbed in this country for the last 40 years or so a myth that we have something called de facto segregation, the segregation that results from people's choices or discriminate, private discrimination or, or income differences and so forth. That's a myth. We do not have de facto segregation in this country. We have the jury segregation, a segregation by explicit, racially conscious federal, state, and local policies that were designed, all of them designed, to keep blacks and whites living in separate areas and to keep blacks in uh, less adequate ghetto areas uh, far from uh, the white community. Now, we've forgotten all this history. Uh, that may seem like a, a strange statement to you that it was purposeful. We've forgotten all this history. It was once well known in this country. And so let me just review a few of the policies implemented by federal and state and local governments that were explicitly designed to uh, separate the races. And I mean explicitly. I don't mean these were the unintended, that segregation was the unintended effects of benign policies. It was an explicit racial policy. One of the main ones was the federal public housing program which began for civilian public housing in the 1930s. And it was not for African Americans. It was primarily for whites. Liberals fought for a separate public housing program for African Americans. But the public housing was initially designed primarily for white families because we had a civilian housing shortage in this country. And public housing was the best housing available for many lower middle and working class families, white working class families. And the federal government under the Public Works Administration adopted an explicit policy of neighborhood composition in which the Public Works Administration uh, decreed that public housing for either whites or blacks would be placed in neighborhoods with the same composition as the uh, race for which the housing was intended. The idea being that housing for blacks would be placed in black communities and housing for whites would be placed in white communities. In fact, what the Public Housing Administration did was segregate areas and metropolitan areas throughout this country um, which had never previously been segregated. Uh, they were integrated. We, in the 1930s, uh, urban areas were much more integrated than they are today because urban immigrants, ethnic immigrants from Europe and uh, rural migrants and African Americans all had to live close enough to the downtown factories where they could walk to work. So we had integrated urban neighborhoods. It's not to say that every other home was of a different race or ethnicity. There are clusters, obviously, but the overall neighborhoods were integrated. 
uh, I think Gerald mentioned my, my article about St. Louis, which I wrote after Ferguson. In St. Louis, for example, uh, the federal government and the St. Louis uh, city government raised, that is, demolished a, an integrated neighborhood uh, near downtown. It was called the uh, DeSoto Car neighborhood to build a, an all-black public housing project. It turned an integrated neighborhood into an African-American uh, area of concentration and built a separate project far south of downtown for whites. And this went on uh, throughout the country. In World War II, the second great migration of African-Americans to uh, urban centers took place when African-Americans moved to um, uh, centers of defense production. And the federal government uh, had to build housing to house all of the defense workers who had flooded into cities on, on the coasts uh, for shipbuilding, uh, on the interior for, for uh, uh, production of tanks and, and uh, planes. Uh, the federal government built explicitly segregated public housing. Detroit, for example, uh, uh, built a bomber plant in Willow Run. Uh, it later became an automobile manufacturing plant. Uh, the government built a bomber plant in, in Willow Run, a suburb of Detroit. It was a rural area before that. There was no previously existing um, uh, racial pattern there. And the federal government built housing for white workers only. Uh, blacks were excluded from the housing. Blacks were therefore unable to commute to the Willow Run plant to work, whereas they had worked in the automobile plants all the plants that were in uh, uh, central Detroit. In Richmond, California, a major center of shipbuilding, there was almost no African-American population before World War II. Uh, black workers flooded into Richmond to, to take advantage of the tens of thousands of jobs in the shipbuilding and related industries. And the government built separate housing uh, for African-Americans and for white defense workers in Richmond. Uh, the, Housing for black workers was situated in an industrial area close to the shipbuilding yards. The housing for white workers was, was uh, uh, created farther away from the yards in a, a residential area. Richmond later became a black ghetto, the largest black ghetto in, in um, Northern California. It was created by the federal government. This was not a, a natural uh, uh, development. In 1949, there was still a civilian housing shortage after World War II. President Truman at that time uh, proposed a National Housing Act to vastly expand the public housing uh, program. Uh, again, primarily for whites, because there was still a civilian housing shortage, but for whites and blacks. Liberals, as I said, fought to make sure that housing was provided for blacks as well. And uh, conservatives in, the, uh, in Congress opposed this uh, pr proposal for um, expanded public housing program. By, uh, and, and did so by uh, introducing a poison pill amendment to the uh, National Housing Act. The poison pill amendment, uh, I'm sure you all know, as we have, still have them today, it's an amendment uh, attached to a bill which, if passed, would ensure the defeat of the entire bill. And Republicans in Congress, uh, conservatives, uh, led by Senator Robert Taft, um, uh, proposed an amendment requiring that all public housing be integrated, knowing that if that amendment were adopted, Southern Democrats would then vote against public housing entirely, and there would be no public housing. Liberals in the Senate, led by uh, Hubert Humphrey, uh, Paul Douglas, who was the leading liberal in the Senate at that time, fought against the integration amendment, rounded up all of their liberal colleagues to vote against integration in public housing. The integration amendment was defeated, and the National Housing Act was passed as a segregated program. 
In St. Louis, again, to use that example, uh, the Pruitt-Igo Towers that some of you may remember um, were created. Uh, giant towers that eventually uh, became dysfunctional and were dynamited in the 1970s. The Pruitt-Igo Towers were created as two separate um, uh, projects. The Pruitt Towers were for blacks. The Igo Towers were for whites. A few years, though, after they were created, the Igo Towers for whites had large number of vacancies. The civilian housing shortage had ebbed for whites. The black project had long waiting lists. And so St. Louis eventually opened it up to um, uh, blacks. The Pruitt Igo Towers became all blacks as whites left. Um, as the industry also left downtown St. Louis, more and more African Americans were unemployed. There were more welfare families. The place, as I said, became dysfunctional. It was eventually dynamited. Uh, in, in 1972. Well, how was it that the Igo Towers uh, developed all these vacancies? Where did the whites go? Well, they went to suburbs that were created by the federal government as explicitly white suburbs. The federal government began, the Federal Housing Administration began a program of suburbanizing the white population. They financed uh, developers, uh, mass production developers, to build giant suburbs. Uh, Probably the best known one is Levittown in New York. They were all across the country. Uh, some of you may have heard a uh, song that Pete Seeger used to sing about the uh, houses on a hillside made of ticky-tacky. That was about a suburb south of St. Louis, uh, south of, I'm sorry, south of San Francisco, which again was financed by the Federal Housing Administration on condition that the builder not sell any homes to African Americans. In Levittown, African-Americans were not permitted to uh, live there. What was the result? First, whites fled the cities for the subsidized federal uh, white-only suburbs. Uh, houses in Levittown and, and uh, south of Daly City and south of San Francisco and Daly City and suburbs in St. Louis and Cleveland and Chicago and all across the country. Uh, returning war veterans, for example, could, um, with no down payment, buy these single-family homes and pay less monthly carrying charges than they were paying in rent for public housing. So the federal government subsidized the, the movement of whites out of uh, these projects uh, into the suburbs. In 1947-48, when Levittown was first uh, built, you could buy a home in Levittown for uh, $7,000. Uh, today's dollars, that's about $125,000. Today, homes in Levittown or Daly City or in the suburbs of St. Louis or the other cities I mentioned sell for $400,000, $500,000. In the ensuing three generations, uh, those families gained $400,000 in equity. African-American families who had the same skills, the same incomes as whites in the 1940s and 1950s uh, lived in Harlem in, in New York or in Oakland in, in uh, San Francisco in rented apartments and gain none of that equity. Today, the average African-American family income is about 60% of white family income. Average black family wealth is 5% of white family wealth. And that difference between 60% and 5% is almost entirely attributable to explicit federal racial policy. Now, there are many, many other public policies that I don't have time to go into here that segregated our metropolitan areas. Um, they were, took place at the local level, they took place at the, the federal level, they took place at the state level. It's an unconstitutional system we have. It's a de jure system. We're all responsible for it as members of this collective nation. Our government did this. 
the segregation of our metropolitan areas was an explicit racial policy, and there's a constitutional obligation to reverse it. Unless we accept that constitutional obligation, unless we embark on aggressive policies to desegregate metropolitan areas, going back to where I began, there's no chance that we're going to ever desegregate schools. And if we don't desegregate schools, we're not going to close the achievement gap. Because we have adopted this myth of de facto segregation, we sometimes talk about policies, minor policies, to integrate uh, metropolitan areas, but we feel no obligation to do so. We don't understand that there's a constitutional obligation to redress the unconstitutional racial policies that the government followed for most of the 20th century. Let me give you an example, a wild example, of what it actually would take to redress this. I mentioned the Levittown example before. If we were serious about a constitutional remedy to desegregate Levittown, and Levittown, by the way, is still only 1% African-American in a metropolitan area that's 23% or 24% African-American. If we were serious about that, uh, the federal government perhaps should purchase the next 23 or 24% of homes that come available for sale in Levittown, purchase them for $500,000, where the market rate is, and resell them to qualified African-Americans for $125,000. That would be a constitutional remedy. I defy any lawyer in this group, in this audience, to tell me why that's not constitutionally required based on the history that I've described. And that would integrate the schools of Levittown. And it would enable children who grow up in Levittown in that uh, African-American population to have a much better chance to achieve at levels that their white peers achieve at. There's much more that we could do in the way of policy to desegregate and to achieve integrated schools. Uh, perhaps I'll get a chance to talk about some of them in the question period, but I thank you for your attention so far. Any second it will pop up. Well, while we're waiting for it to pop up. No, that's not me. I, I'm not an attorney, and I'm not a historian. I'm a finance and real estate professor at North Carolina State University. Um, the We're getting closer, I think. Ah, there we go. So... There I am, a finance and real estate professor at NC State University. Uh, my research of late has been about uh, housing and, and schools. Um, so this presentation, Assigned Schools, Urban Blight, and CPR. We're not moving forward here. It, it it's up here. All right, we we actually worked thirty minutes ago here. 
I've never had any success with any of them in my life. <laughs> well, it made a sound. All right, well, let me go ahead and get started. We'll uh, catch up with the pictures here in a moment. Let me start out by saying that, that uh, there are a lot of empty school buildings in Kansas City, Missouri. And that's because in the late 1960s, there were 77,000 children in the Kansas City school system. But this year, there are a little under 17,000. So you might ask, where did those other 60,000 children go? Thank you. Hold on, don't leave yet. All right, that's good. Okay, well, where do those other 60,000 children go? Well, to understand the answer to that, it helps to know that in the United States, there are about the same number of five to nine-year-olds as zero to four-year-olds. Those are both five-year cohorts. But that's not true in Kansas City. There are actually 15% fewer five to nine-year-olds than zero to four-year-olds. And only 10 miles away in Overland Park, there are 36% more five to nine-year-olds than zero to four-year-olds. You see, when a family has a child reaching age five, they leave Kansas City and head to Overland Park. And over time, that has a disastrous effect on the inner city. So economists call this voting with your feet. It works like this. Politicians draw lines on the ground called school district boundaries. And then people choose their schools by choosing which side of that line to live on. The result is something we call spatial sorting. And what we mean by this is that when people choose their schools, inevitably a wealthier group will end up on one side of the line than the other. So you have on one side of the line higher home prices, higher income levels, and better schools. On the other side of the line, you have exactly the opposite. Now, we got rid of the poll tax in the 1960s. You don't have to pay to vote in elections, but you still have to pay to vote with your feet. And if you can't afford to pay, to vote with your feet, you end up on the side of the line with other people who can't afford to vote. So who gets the worst schools? Well, poor people, we know that. But not just the poor, and this is really, really important. Anybody who lives around poor people get those schools. Right? What that means is if a middle-class family who cares about education as their child approaches five years old, they literally have no choice but to leave the poor behind them. This leads to economic segregation and racial segregation. There's a rich part of town and there's a poor part of town. That's bad for the poor, but it's worse because of something called a spatial mismatch. Poor people want jobs, but jobs aren't being created in the space they live in. They're being created where the middle class and the wealthy are spending their money. So poor people can't get to those jobs. That reduces social mobility. They can't get a job. They can't put their foot on the ladder of success, move into the middle class. Many poor people don't even know anybody in the middle class. Over time, that leads to increased uh, social and economic inequality. Problems worse because people don't vote with their feet. They actually vote with their cars. 
It's a modern invention, relatively speaking. This results in more urban sprawl. People are able to vote over much longer distances than you could have imagined only a few decades ago. Much more urban sprawl, but also with that sprawl, what's left behind, the urban blight becomes more concentrated. We have more traffic to accommodate the sprawl. We build more roads to accommodate the traffic. We have more air pollution, more CO2 emissions. Now, I don't want to pick on Kansas City. Negative 15%, I refer to that as the family flight rate, but they are not the worst city in the country. They're not even the worst in Missouri. Okay? This problem exists in every major urban area in the country today. This is just a representative sample. I used to live in Atlanta. Some people see Atlanta on that list and they're surprised. I think, well, isn't Atlanta a success story? They held the Olympics there because uh, Atlanta is up and coming. Um, well, if we take a closer look at what's really going on in Atlanta, this is a picture. This picture shows the changes in population between the last two censuses. The Aryan Brown population actually declined. Okay? This surprises people who don't live in Atlanta. But the city of Atlanta today actually has fewer people living in it than lived there in 1966 when the Atlanta Braves moved to Atlanta. The suburbs have grown enormously, right, as has the traffic. Now, the Atlanta Braves play, there's a little black star there. They play at that location where that black star is located. If you want to see the Atlanta Braves play in Atlanta, you need to go soon. In 2017, they're moving to the suburbs. They said that's where our fans are. You see, once a, uh, a city loses its middle class, it begins to lose those businesses that depend upon the middle class. Now, there are a lot of people who work in and around the Atlanta Braves Stadium. But in 2017, those people are going to be spatially mismatched from their jobs as their jobs pick up and leave for the suburbs. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be this way. There are systems that allow people to ignore those lines. So let's take one for example. Right? This is based on research that I've done. Let's look at the tuitioning system in Vermont. Okay? Vermont's had a tuitioning system for 150 years. Basically, there are 200 school districts there. 93 of them don't have a public school. Now, what do you do when you don't have a public school? Well, the school district will pay for a child to attend any other, public, any other district's public school in the state or any independent school, actually not just in the state, in state or out of the state. If you look up there along the top of Vermont, a couple of those green areas, or areas where there have been children who went to school in Canada on a Vermont tuitioning uh, payment. Right? That's ignoring a line, a really big line, a national border. So what does this mean at the district level? Well, take the Winhall School District. Right? It's a small district. 1998, it had a poorly performing public school. They were down to only 36 students in the school. They were spending 180% of the state average for, uh, to, per child. What they did then was something really remarkable. The town voted to close its public school, to give the building to a new independent, i.e. private school that agreed to take every child that was in the district, okay, and they adopted the tuitioning system. So they just converted from that public system to the tuitioning system. So 
What happened? Well, today, the students in that school are above the state average in reading, in writing, in arithmetic. The school has grown now from 36 up to 80 students, and they only spend 82% of the state average. They're doing a lot more with a lot less. In addition, you see that family flight rate in Winhall is now uh, plus 14. People are moving to Winhall when their children are from school age. Right? We looked at the effect, we were interested in the economic effects of these school choice, these tuitioning systems across the entire state. So to get a handle on that, we looked at home values. In this graphic, you see home, there are three homes, home A, home B, home C, they're identical. Home A is in a better school district than home B by, based on test scores. Home C doesn't have an assigned school at all. It's a tuitioning district. Right? We know that homes in A would be worth more than B in a better school district. We've always known that. What about C? Well, what we discovered was the home values in C are above average, and when you compare them to B, schools that, that are weaker than one within 20 miles, what we find is that those tuitioning homes are worth $24,000 more on average than homes that are assigned to relatively weak schools. Now, there aren't very many, uh, there aren't very many, that's published in the Journal of Housing Research, uh, there aren't many places with tuitioning systems that ignore lines. There are a lot of schools that ignore lines. There are private schools and charter schools. We have a, a uh, grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to study one of these. Uh, and the school that we were studying uh, was uh, the Orange County School of the Arts, uh, started by the gentleman there in the middle. His name's Ralph Apasic. I went to high school with Ralph out in Burke, Virginia, Lake Braddock, and uh, graduated with him. Uh, Ralph was passionate about music and the arts. And so in 1984, he took a job in Los Alamitos, California, as the choir director of the local high school. Um, he had other, other duties, but he was the choir director. There were 30 children in the choir. Three years later, there were 350. He was really good at what he did. And he used, he was beloved. He used that, that popularity and success to start the Orange County School of the Arts in Los Alamitos. And, and naturally, it was successful as well. Um, and it needed to expand. At that point, the city council said, oh, hold on, we're not, we, we're not sure we want you to expand. Actually, we're not sure we want you here at all. You see, the, the Orange County School of the Arts was pulling kids in across the lines. And Los Alamitos had a family flight rate of plus 24. The lines were working pretty well for them. Uh, they said, you know, you're bringing in some traffic. You're going to bring in more. And not only that, we'd kind of like to use that area. You've got a school for an athletic field. So... The Orange County School of the Arts faced a, a true existential crisis. They either had to move or they were out of business. And at that point, a mayor in a nearby town, Santa Ana, California, which is uh, relatively poor, 90% minority, uh, has the worst family flight rate in all of Orange County, called Ralph up and said, you know, they're worried about traffic. We're not worried about traffic. We wish we had some. You can roll a bowling ball down Main Street, and the buildings on both sides of Main Street are, are empty. If you'll come to Santa Ana, we'll help to get you into uh, one of those empty buildings. And so that's how the Orange County School of the Arts ended up moving to downtown 
a blighted area in downtown Santa Ana, which in that building, which is an old bank building. Okay. Now, it turned out to be a really great thing because the school was successful. And there were a lot of empty buildings around, and they were able to acquire other buildings uh, as they grew. Uh, so they're now in three bank, old bank buildings and uh, an old church. But this mayor was really visionary. Okay? He, didn't just, he didn't stop there. He brought in two other charter schools. He had a lot of empty space. Brought in two other charter schools. So now, today, there are 3,500 children going to school within two blocks of Main Street in downtown Santa Ana. From my perspective as a real estate researcher, though, the interesting thing is that block right there, that empty block, because a developer came in and acquired that property and cleared the land in order to build that, which would be the largest building, the tallest building in all of Orange County. Okay, It's right in the middle of those three charter schools. Now, why would you come to a blighted area to build that? Well, I was standing at the corner in the corner of Main Tent, you look around, it's not blighted. Right? Unless you're really curmudgeonly and don't like artsy teenage teenagers. Uh, there's a lot of activity going on there now. Talked with the mayor, he said, you know, one of the things that was funny was the crime rate dropped dramatically around those schools. Right? Now, perhaps he shouldn't have been that surprised. There's actually been some research done on this. Uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, they had a school choice program that allowed uh, children in underperforming poor schools to transfer to uh, better performing schools. Too many people applied. So they had to have a lottery to decide who got, got in. Uh, a researcher at Harvard University tracked the crime rates of the kids who applied to go to the school. Right? And what he found was they committed fewer, the ones who got in, right? committed fewer crimes, they spent fewer days in jail, and the effects were concentrated among minority males right, that committed about half as much crime as the children who applied to go to those schools but were told, no, you need to go back to your assigned school. Okay. Nevertheless, right, even knowing that, I was shocked to discover that Santa Ana, 90% minority, right, relatively poor, was named last year by Forbes magazine as the fourth safest city in the country. Something dramatic changed there. Now, the research that we're doing uh, for the National Endowment for the Arts is based on research that was published in Real Estate Economics called It Makes a Village, Residential Relocation After Charter School Admission. We were interested in this paper to, to see what effect a charter school had on the area around the school. Uh, the one we were studying here was the first of a small chain of, of charter and, and private schools now referred to as Luddy schools in, in Wake Forest. Uh, one of the things we did is we looked at how the families that attended that school moved over time. So what you see here, that dark dot, is the school's location. Every one of those other dots is a family that moved after they got a child into the school. That school is powerfully attractive. Bounce back to where they started, then where they ended. All right. We used a methodology to compare this to how businesses attract workers, how people, we know people like to live closer to work. 
This school is more attractive than any other study has ever found any business to be. People care more about their children's commutes than their own, and they make sacrifices on their behalf. Right? Now, if you want to attract families that care about education to an area, you need to use the right bait, and I think you're looking at, at one of them right there. This is another charter school in Raleigh, North Carolina. Open in a blighted area, you can tell it's blighted, there's no roof on the building next door. Right? Five years later, a developer had come in to build a real estate development right next door, marketing proximity to that charter school. That charter school literally turned the wrong side of the railroad tracks into the right side. Real estate developers are catching on. There's an article in Urban Land Magazine uh, this last week, basically read by developers, right? talking about a uh, neighborhood that's being built in Panama City. There's an airport, old airport in Panama City that was closed a few years ago, a new one opened farther outside of town. The, um, uh, a developer came in, acquired 700 acres to build mixed-use development, including residential. The problem he had was those Panama City schools aren't very good. Right? But he took a page out of, out of Santa Ana's uh, playbook, and uh, the terminal that you see there at the old airport right, is now University Academy. They turned it, they retrofitted it, reused it as a charter school. There are now 300 children attending that charter school, and there are 1,000 children on the waiting list. Right? As of today, that's the only building on that entire piece of property. Last month, they began to build a residence, university, or, uh, university Park, Academy Park, right around that school. I think they're going to do really well financially by doing something really good for that community. Now, what, what can cities learn from this? Well, cities need to be focused on something I'll call city protection and revitalization scholarships. Protection, reducing crime, revitalization, increasing economic activity. All right? Let's just call them CPR scholarships. You don't have to give CPR to everyone, you give CPR to people that are dying. And you don't have to give CPR scholarships everywhere, you need to give it to the places that are dying. And those places are places with concentrated poverty and where families are moving out when their children reach school age. In those areas, all children should get Vermont-style tuitioning. You give it to the poor for social justice reasons, they're burdened with bad schools. You give it to the middle class and even the wealthy they're not there right now. You give it to them in those places if they'll come because the poor desperately need the middle class to be willing to live around them. And they're not right now because they'll get schools that they don't want. So what would CPR scholarships do? Well, they would improve the local economy, fight blight and sprawl, reduce air pollution and CO2 emissions, reduce crime, reduce economic segregation, decrease income inequality, increase social mobility, reduce infrastructure costs, improve public health, and they might save some municipal pensions. So let me summarize very quickly here. Politicians draw lines on the ground and they divide people. Then people vote with their feet. That leads to greater urban sprawl suburban sprawl, and also more concentrated urban blight. It leads to more pollution, more concentrated poverty, and social division. Okay. 
Now, very recently, HUD announced a new rule. It's called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing. And the goal of this rule is to move subsidized housing out of areas with concentrated poverty and into areas, quote, rich with opportunity. We're mostly talking about moving people into the suburbs, Levittown. Okay? That's the, the stated goal. That might be needed, all right? I'm not, not opining on that. But let's consider the, uh, the narrative that you've just seen here. What we see here is this HUD proposal is attacking the symptom. It's attacking a symptom here. And you can attack, you can treat the symptom, and you might have some success, but if you don't go after the root cause, it will just come back. You have to focus on the root cause, which are those lines that have been drawn on the ground. You eliminate that problem, and the other problems will begin to fade away. Now, I'm actually very hopeful because with the right set of policies, change could happen very quickly. And the reason for that is young people like living in cities. They come there after, after they get out of school. They take jobs. They meet people. They fall in love. They get married. They have children. And then when the kids are reaching five years old, they're going to have to make a decision. Right? They're going to face a question. And that's an, a, a question that should be important to us as well. That's the reason that I founded environmentalists for education reform. This is an important economic question. It's an important social question. It's also a critically important environmental question. Now, I hope that when you leave here, you'll talk to other people and, and uh, spread these ideas because every uh, social change requires individual moments of realization that things can be different than they are. And when you begin to change when you change someone's mind, you begin to change the world. If you saw anything on that list of 10 benefits of CPR scholarships, you need to be with us. Okay? So I hope, you'll, I hope you'll join with us. Help us change minds and change the world. Thank you. Thankfully, I, I eschew all technology, so I shouldn't have any technical glitches. Um, but we'll see. Uh, but to borrow from an old uh, mystery trope, I suppose you're wondering why I asked you all here today. Uh, but of course, I, I didn't actually summon you guys. I might have summoned you all. You might feel that way anyway. But I didn't really summon you. You came of your own volition. Um, perhaps to engage with this, I think, very important and very difficult topic, uh, but, or it might be to engage in the free lunch afterwards. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but I want to give you a bit of my thinking, Richard already shared a little bit of this, uh, uh, in putting this event together. And sometimes you know, I throw together, I shouldn't say throw together, that seems haphazard, I carefully construct a forum, and I do it because I want to have a debate. Uh, if I ask somebody to come here to speak about the Common Core, for instance, you get ready to throw down. Uh, I'm almost certainly sure I have the right answers when it comes to something like the Common Core, and you're either invited because I agree with you, which is good, smart move, or you don't, and I want to prove you wrong. Uh, sure, I also want to have an event that's informative. Um, I want even something that engages and entertains the audience, but I really often want to win on a point about which I'm pretty sure I'm right and the other speakers sometimes are wrong. 
In my mind, though, this is not at all such an event. I mean, I certainly have ideas about how we can best deal with the problems of race and social cohesion and schooling that we've faced really for centuries. Uh, but I don't think I have all the definitive answers in this case. Uh, I'm not even sure I completely understand all the problems. Uh, I am for sure not an expert at all in housing policy, uh, nor have I conducted a lengthy study of the history and effects of housing policy than particularly Richard has. Uh, indeed, as Richard already mentioned, sort of the genesis of this forum uh, is in Richard having contacted me uh, about a blog post he wrote, although that blog post was in response really to the comments under a blog post at a Brookings institution posting by uh, Brookings scholars Stuart Butler and Jonathan excuse me, Jonathan Brabinski, and it was about uh, segregation and housing and poverty in Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, what Richard was responding to were actually some comments underneath in which people voiced some pretty, pretty common uh, thoughts about why we may have segregation, including that it's substantially self-selected, that we have self-segregation, which I'll talk about. Uh, or that it's also a personal choice by many people not to improve their own human capital, which leads to poverty, which prevents them from moving elsewhere. Uh, his point, as you've heard today, is that you know there may be something to these phenomena, I think he thinks. Um, but the real and most important part of this is housing policy. Housing policy may well be the root cause of these problems. Um, Richard asked me to respond at the time in writing. Uh, and um, I didn't have the, the, well, the time to do all the research I thought would have been needed to do it. I had some other things. And most importantly, I thought this is the sort of thing that should be in a forum. I assumed maybe arrogantly that if I didn't know about this long history of housing that Richard talked about, maybe there were other people who didn't know it either. And this needed to be discussed. Um, of course, understanding that education is largely determined by your address, and the goal of housing policy has often been to ensure segregation of address, the big question now is, what do we do about it? My own thoughts, but again, these are not thoughts I'm prepared to insist are at all that necessarily the right answer, that I think we have proof of what the right answer is. But my thoughts are that, of course, any deliberately segregationist or biased housing policy should be abolished. I'm hesitant, though, to say we should try any, see, any policy designed to remedy past wrongs by, say, requiring people in Levittown sell their houses at certain prices uh, to people, or at least as a transaction, based on race or to give race-based housing policies, housing subsidies, rather. This is partially on the grounds that, you know, of the very simplistic notion that two wrongs don't make a right. But it's also many inherent difficulties of saying, well, which African-American families should qualify for assistance or lower prices, and which shouldn't? Because, of course, all African-Americans, like all people of any race, creed, or color, um, are ultimately individuals with unique backgrounds, unique needs, and circumstances. And, and that becomes a problem of how do you justly give out these, these remedies? Uh, there's also a problem, I think, of building resentments that could be exacerbated by, that could, or this could build, rather, resentments that exacerbate racial tensions. As social psychologist Patricia Devine has reported, there are people who are not, quote, people who are not privately motivated to respond without prejudice, but who are sensitive to external mandates prescribing prejudice. They comply, but they do not do so happily. 
That is, their compliance is accompanied by feelings of anger and resentment, which fuels their prejudice and their tendency to show a backlash against the pressure. This sort of response, though also I think a much broader response, perhaps just to coercion itself, may be why forced busing fell into great disrepute and really remains so today. Polling has found that while support for black and white students attending the same schools has reached really near unanimity in the abstract. It's like 93% or so of people say that they think that is something we need to have. The public at the same time much prefers students stay in their local schools, quote, even if it means that most of the students would be of the same race. What does appear to get major support, though again this is often in the abstract, uh, is developing low-income housing in middle-class areas, that tends to get fairly high support, or redrawing district lines, um, and public school choice such as magnet schools and intra-district choice, where you can choose any public school within your district. Importantly, the summary of polls that had this information didn't ask about private school choice. Um, it also seems clear that while undoubtedly housing policy has likely exacerbated housing uh, segregation and hence school segregation, people do have a tendency to self-segregate. It is simply easier to live with people like oneself. How one looks, you know, our outward appearance, doesn't have to be the primary criteria feeding what is called homophily, which is sort of the fancy word for preference for similar people. It could be language, it could be religion, etc. But race is, you know, of course correlated to a significant extent with things like culture. And more important is often the first thing that we see when we enter neighborhoods. And rightly or wrongly, People base a lot of conclusions on that, somewhat naturally. Um, so people often choose to live with people who look like themselves, but also share language, we found, religion, political outlook, etc. And this shouldn't really be surprising. Again, interactions and life are often easier and more comfortable when our neighbors share our norms, our life experiences, etc. Remarkable levels of residential sorting have been found, right down to concentrations of wine lovers and RV enthusiasts, all in particular uh, geographic areas. Um, and so again, much of this seems to be something of a natural thing that happens. Perhaps then the key to integration is not trying to sort of force together magnets, you know, when you put them together and they have the same charge, they don't want to go together. But to sort of switch them around, we need something that attracts people together. Again, this is the idea. I didn't just, I thought I came up with a great uh, metaphor, but I didn't, of course, because we have magnet schools. That is the idea of a magnet school. Um, the way, in, especially in terms of education, we bring together people is school choice, so that regardless of where people live, though of course it's important that there's a limit to how far people will travel for school choice. You do need to have concentrations of people to have more and more choice. But regardless of where they live, people of different races with choice would have the ability to choose among schools of different types, religious, arts-based, Montessori, science-based, all sorts of schools. Essentially, we want a system in which schools can attract diverse families by offering something unique or desired that also serves as sort of a binding agent or a bonding agent that would overcome uh, often superficial racial divides or religious divides or linguistic divides. In other words, have something that people already have in common that helps to unify them. 
this is, of course, largely the goal, like I said, of magnet schools, but those schools are constrained. They're constrained in that they are public schools, established typically by school districts. For one thing, that means they cannot be religious, and religion is something that is a powerful binder, and there's a good amount of research on the importance of religion for building social capital and things like that. Um, so that's important, especially if you want to have shared, very clear norms that are a bonding agent. The other problem is magnet schools aren't established independently. It's not that somebody sees, a group of people see, well, we have a need or a demand for an arts-based school here. Let's move and create it. Of course, school districts and states are slow to move, very bureaucratic, can't quickly respond often to the needs and desires of people. Um, so there is not, I should say, extensive research on the integrational effect of school choice, especially private school choice, which is, though private school choice, again, is the key if you want religious choice, very quick, very nimble choices. Uh, there's not a whole lot of research in terms of building bonds, but what there is suggests that choice provides stronger bonding agents among people than at least traditional public schooling, and that includes, includes between and among races. Uh, of course, Moving to full choice will not create perfect, proportionate racial distribution. We shouldn't ever expect that will be the case. And may even lead to less physical integration. But in terms of the quality of integration, in terms of really building bonds between people, there is good reason to believe it is powerful, and some research that bears that out. The other part of this, though, involves residential integration, and this is uh, based in part on what Bart talked about. Choice and autonomy for schools may be the key to creating better schools, and a key to having a high concentration of schools is a high concentration of people. Those high concentrations are typically found in urban areas, and hence choice could, and it seems does, help to facilitate urban renewal. And that, in turn, could begin to transform once blighted areas which tend to be overwhelmingly low income, uh, and, and there's a correlation between income and race. And so, in part, this is due to past discriminatory housing policy, um, and it could help to make these areas into more socioeconomically and hence racially mixed areas. Again, having something that all people want can provide a bonding agent uh, to counter those things that divide us. Of course, there, there is danger in this. The dangers with what we've started to see in gentrifying areas, which is first mixing, but then eventually displacement of poor former residents. Indeed, uh, Richard in his report, I don't think you mentioned this in talking, but you observed in St. Louis in Ferguson, what we've seen is sort of a, a reverse donut taking shape. So uh, typically we would think of, we think of cities as inner city as predominantly African-American and then the suburbs as predominantly white. But in, in St. Louis, what we've started to see are white people moving back into the inner city, and then these, these sort of enclaves of, of low-income people and African-Americans in the suburbs. Now, if that's displacement, that is a big problem. Uh, but to my knowledge, and I could be wrong on this, because like I said, I don't think I have the definitive answers here, but there's not evidence that this effect has been worse than former suburbanization and ghettoization. Now, I could be wrong about that. Maybe I'll find out. I am. But so we have really a, a wicked problem of housing segregation driven by law that we absolutely want to ameliorate, but which may also reflect, at least to some meaningful extent, 
Some racial concentrations people would have chosen on their own because we are all sort of naturally uh, inclined to want to live with people, again, like ourselves, because living then is easier when you share norms and backgrounds and things like that. Our transactions with each other are easier. Uh, and of course, we all have a desire to greatly improve race relations and equality in this country. It's not a problem that has easy, clear answers. I think that we've established that. Um, and if we haven't, history has established that. And I think it needs, importantly, to be discussed calmly and with the presumption of good intentions from all. What I hope this forum has been and has had and will continue to be. And I would just submit that school choice may be able to provide a significant part of the solution to this very vexing, seemingly eternal American problem. Thank you. So you've had three different approaches to dealing with race, housing, and segregation. Um, we had Rothstein who mentioned uh, school quality has to happen in an integrated education uh, school. He also mentioned the idea of the federal government buying housing and giving it to African Americans. We have Danielson who provided some examples of what a charter school and the role that it played in turning around a blighted area and attracting uh, people to the area. And Neil, we have the um, idea of school choice and the idea of incentives and what it will mean. When you take a look at a snapshot of American education uh, 2014, it was the first time in American history that the majority of public school students in the nation, over 50 million, uh, were non-white. And you're going to see a trend moving forward, uh, particularly for the Hispanic community. There's been a great uh, deal of conversation about black but the real uh, push for public education uh, change in demography will be with Hispanic families, also with Asian families as well. And so we have a school system that primarily will become more non-white as time moves on. We know that four out of every five students who attend a public school attend a public school they're assigned to. And yet we see a rise in school choice. Uh, over 2 million students now in over 6,400 magnet schools. Uh, 200,000, really 300,000 plus children in school choice programs, tax credits, vouchers. We have ESAs, education savings accounts. So there's going to be a major growth there. So I've got one general question, and then I will open it uh, to the audience for a question. Uh, given the fact that public schools are becoming more non-white, uh, given the fact that most students are assigned to the schools that they go to, uh, isn't it likely that the proposals that we've heard today, in fact, won't integrate schools any better? and that we should focus more on education and not integration. And we'll start with... Well, um, as I said earlier, most um, African-American children in this country live too far distant from uh, middle-class areas to make choice a um, meaningful uh, solution to uh, the problems of segregation that we have. Uh, there is no, if you look at the maps of places like Detroit and Cleveland or uh, many parts of New York City or uh, even Washington, D.C., you'll see that the opportunities for creating magnet schools or uh, other schools of choice uh, for integration are fairly limited. You can accomplish something. Um, and one of the things you can do is you can flood uh, lower middle class inner ring suburbs with disadvantaged children from uh, the central city, but you're not going to reach the truly middle class communities that are farther 
distant. So I don't see that um, the solutions that have been put forward here today address the real problem. They address uh, you know, the periphery of the problem, but not the real problem. So far as uh, uh, the majority of the schools being non-white, the history of, of uh, the African-American experience and the Latino experience in this country are very, very different. Um, African-Americans, as I uh, indicated, have been segregated by um, explicit federal, state, and local public policy, unconstitutional policy, de jure segregation. Um, Neil says that if we try to remedy that, there'll be a backlash. I don't think in the system of government that we have that we can accept that as a reason not to uh, remedy a wrong, uh, and a serious constitutional wrong. We've created a caste system in this country, and we need to remedy it. Certainly, the fact that there may be a backlash means we need to do a lot more education in this country about the history that I described so that people understand the obligation uh, to simply impose this now when everybody is under the delusion that we have a de facto system is, is surely foolish. But education uh, of the American public about this history, reawakening them of the, about this history is, is essential. But unless we do that, uh, we are not going to integrate schools. And if we don't integrate schools uh, through residential uh, desegregation, we're not going to really address the kind of achievement gap that everybody claims to be concerned about. Um. Well, the, the question was related to integrating schools, and I will admit that that, that is not my area of expertise. Uh, my expertise is outside the school. What I will say is this. When you have policies that are segregating the city, it becomes increasingly difficult to integrate the schools. The systems that we have right now, when you put that line on the ground and tell people, vote with your feet, over time, it becomes just more and more difficult for the school system to accommodate the migrations that are going to happen as a result of that policy. It'll work for a little while, but then it doesn't. Uh, we only spend 3% of our lives on average in school. You spend 97% of your life outside of school. Uh, we need to be thinking more about how school policy and how drawing those lines is impacting the 97% of life. That piece of life shouldn't be run by people just because they're administering the 3%. The administrators of the 3% shouldn't have disproportionate impact on the 97%. Yeah, I, I think maybe your question was, do we, should our focus educationally be on what education we're delivering regardless of the, the demographics of the school. And I, you know, like all social problems, there's so many different variables involved, so many things that happen at different rates, absolutely, and I think we have to be doing everything we can right now to try and improve outcomes. A lot of that is improving the quality of instruction. I think choice is very important in that because you need to have competition, you need to have innovation that comes with allowing people to try different things and having to respond to the people you're supposed to be serving. Um, I do think Richard is absolutely right in saying, I think it's really crucial that people learn about this housing history. This is why I think that, this is, like I said, this is one of the reasons I, uh, 
he and I worked on this event, is I don't think people know the history. Um, and we really do need to do, and I think if people did know the history, they would probably be more open to different ways of ameliorating it. Uh, my concern is we should, uh, aside from the educational aspect, is we also, I think, need to be realistic about what we might be able to accomplish in terms of integration, either through housing or through education. Given what we've seen repeatedly through history, we've seen it in, from um, social psychologists have found it, that people do tend to like to live with people who are similar to themselves. That doesn't have to mean based on race, but that will probably be part of it. So I don't want people to go thinking, well, we could have this ideal where each percentage of the population is gonna live, that's how they'll be represented in each neighborhood. What we've seen is that people like to be in sort of homogeneous areas. So we may be able to do some things, certainly to overcome past discrimination, to make things better, but I don't think we can expect, at least right away, even if you move people into what once was all white housing areas and try and change it, what we see is that people you know, will move. Um, and we just need to be able to expect that, and that's why I think the choice piece is so important for integration, is it's got to be more than just physical proximity to each other. It has to be about building bonds that overcome those sort of natural things where we say, well, you know, in fact, stereotyping, unfortunately, is something we do at first because our minds are finite and we need little clues to start to decide who are these people I've never met before, this person. And then as we meet them, we learn, oh boy, a lot of these stereotypes are just wrong. But you need to have really uh, in, um, close, equal status, contact among people where they can really get to know each other and part of that is saying we're all in this school because we share the values of the school or we want the curriculum of the school or something like that. Thank you. So we're going to turn it over to questions. We have uh, two microphones. Uh, please state your name, your organizational affiliation, uh, ask one uh, question and you can direct it to a particular speaker or everyone else. We have a uh, question over here. A uh, microphone's coming. Hi, my name's Louise Epstein. I'm here as an individual. I live um, in Fairfax County, Virginia, um, so I know Burke and where you're referring to. And one of the things I'm wondering about is that right now it's very difficult to reconcile the push to have a sort of one-size-fits-all uniform curriculum um, for all students, regardless of where they're starting from, with the ideas that we're hearing today um, about school choice, because um, what you're premising this all on is that we're going to have like an arts academy, we're going to have a math and science academy, and other kinds of specialty schools in a sense. And yet, by definition, that comes up against the mantra that the only way to close the achievement gap is to have a uniform curriculum. So I'd be interested in what everybody thinks about that. Whoever wants to take it. Well, since I, I badmouth the Common Core at the beginning, which is sort of like 20% of my job at all times, um, I think you're right. I mean, there is a, a problem of choice becomes less meaningful when you're told you can only choose all schools that teach X. Uh, sort of in defense of, of standardization, well, I think it's a terrible direction we're moving in. Right now, it's just saying, well, you should meet these standards for math and reading, and then presumably you could do that by still having an arts-based school or religious school, um, but your, art, your math and reading or English language arts curricula, those will have to be somewhat standardized to meet these uh, common core requirements. Uh, the problem then is we also have seen sort of nascent movements. Now there's, when there has been for a while, uh, national uh, science standards 
Uh, and then if you're not part of the, what, whatever the standards are that get tested, you're, you know, if your social studies isn't tested, social studies teachers say, well, you need to test this. They might not want the testing, but they want it to count because they don't want their subject left behind. Or physical education, and eventually the move is to more and more standardization. So I think you're absolutely right, especially in the long term, it's a huge threat. Right now, you could still have a lot of this specialization even with the Common Core. The real problem with Common Core is it's opened the floodgates now to centralization of everything. Yeah, I should say, because it did start, the push to standardize was in states, although the federal government's been encouraging this for a long time. But you're right, there's a, a general idea many people have that you need to standardize everything, and that there are big dangers in that, and I think, as you point out, we need to recognize. Yeah, my name is Li Yang. Thanks for your presentation. I think for the education and whether there is race or non race, white or black, I think importance is to provide an educational nourishing environment for the family. So whether you use your course have a good housing, would have a family member together. And so I just want you didn't address the issues of social economic issue by the impact of they say the policing or administrative strategy, whether they are good for the for the benefit of the student or they divert the resources to benefit the few. So I think the real concept is that the money toward the education or money toward something else, although they use education as a uh, excuse for budgeting. Let me make sure I've understood it. Is it, are you talking about that we, we haven't addressed administrative issues and inequality and in, in how schools are run and, and things? Oh, So before they ever get to school, we talk about the impact of the criminal justice system. Ah, um, yeah, it's, that seems like a pretty big question, and I'm, I may not be able to handle it all now, but I'm, I think that, if I'm understanding correctly, there are certainly issues about, first of all, discipline, although I don't know that we have a, a, a clear sense of when you have disparate impact on discipline, whether it is because of, of, of stereotyping by teachers or, or actually disparate behavior. It's not something I've, I've researched intently, so I don't know that I have the right answer on that. And then I guess outside of school, there does seem to be a problem of over-criminalizing things that move people and, and break up families because parents or other family members are being incarcerated. But I, again, that's not an area that I have great expertise on. I'm not, I'm not sure I completely got your question answered. But. Uh, Dr. Julius Wilson, in um, the spring edition of Education Next has a great article where he talks about families, the criminal justice system, the loss of men 
from inner city neighborhoods and what that would do to impact families and children. So that would be one good place to take a look uh, for, for some of your, um, your answers. So a gentleman over here. Jim Sang, this is for Neil. You had a few words about uh, how sclerotic large organizations are and how hard it is to start new things. Um, I'm old enough to remember 110 Livingston Street and stuff like that. And um, I was reminded that, uh, since I'm a New Yorker originally, that uh, the three most famous high schools in New York started in 38, 30, and between 07 and 34. So, and by in the mid-30s, New York City Board of Education was pr pretty large and bureaucratic. So what did they, what, what have we lost since then, since the, in the 1930s, we were able to create Bronx High School Science, Brooklyn Tech, and, and turn Stuyvesant into his present form, and we seem to have much harder time making these changes nowadays. Well, you know, it's always hard to make an, uh, comparisons between things in the 30s and, and the 20s and 40s and now, in part because we don't have lots of test data and lots of other data that we can make same, same comparisons. Yeah, I, I suspect the New York City School District was smaller at the time. It was probably still the biggest, yeah, but still smaller. But I don't know that we have trouble, uh, even most districts, find a stat or big districts, establishing one or two or three really good schools. It's replicating those schools and bringing them to scale for everyone that they really have problem with. So you could have a project say, let's, let's set up a two or three public schools where you have to pass a test to get in. We're going to concentrate all our best teachers, our best curriculum, everything in these schools, and those could be really good. But it's hard to replicate them at scale, and if things change, if what people want out of education change, it then takes a long time to say, now what schools do we put in that will meet these demands? All right, hand here in the middle, and then we'll go over. This question is for um, Dr. Rothstein, and I don't know if it's Dr. McCluskey. Sorry, Dr. McCluskey. Oh, call so, me whatever you want. <laughs> my name is Saroja Barnes, and I'm with the University of Maryland College Park. Um, you talked a couple times about people choosing to live in certain places because they have personal preferences about um, shared culture and norms and things like that. And I just find it so interesting because oftentimes when we talk about desegregation and segregation, it's, it's very sort of race-centered. We're, we're talking about people grouped together based on race. But I, I would bet, and I don't have the research to back this up, that if you asked poor people where they want to live regardless of race, they don't necessarily want to live with other poor people. So when I think about issues around segregation and desegregation and community norms, I think often that there are issues of class that play out probably more prevalently in people's decision making than the issue about like living with people that look like me, you know, physically. And so I thought I would like if you two could maybe address sort of your thinking around how that plays a part. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to speak to that for a minute. Um, <clears throat> when I uh, gave my example earlier of um, Levittown that, that Neil then referred to, I did not say that the uh, people in Levittown should be forced to sell their homes uh, to African Americans. But I said it was a, an ideal remedy, an ideal type remedy. I, I recognize it's, it's extreme and not realistic, is that the federal government should buy those homes and then resell them 
to qualified uh, African-Americans. People had the income to afford to buy a home for $125,000, which would remedy the, the initial um, uh, uh, violation. Um, if it's true that people want to self-segregate, you wouldn't find any takers of African-Americans who wanted to buy those homes. But I suspect that um, uh, you would have the problem that Neil referred to earlier, is you'd have too many, and how would you choose uh, between those who, um, who would want to buy them? And again, uh, just playing out this example, you could have a lottery. Uh, this is something that seems to be in favor with many people in this room. So you have a lottery. For, for, of qualified people. We have a long history of African-Americans attempting to move into middle-class neighborhoods and being met with violence, uh, often condoned or even instigated by uh, police and public authorities. Um, to the extent that African-Americans don't want to uh, live in middle-class neighborhoods today, predominantly white middle-class neighborhoods, it's largely because of this history of, of violence with which they've been met when they've attempted to do so. Uh, it's not because they want to self-segregate. Even today, uh, when um, uh, African-Americans move into middle-class neighborhoods, police tend to follow them to make sure that they are not where they know, don't belong. Uh, there's a racial profiling. You know, I mean, I don't need to describe that. Uh, um, you know, uh, we had an incident just a few years ago where uh, uh, Henry Louis Gates, a Harvard professor, uh, was uh, arrested by police for, for uh, having trouble getting into his own home. He wasn't wearing a hoodie. He wasn't wearing his uh, uh, pants below his hips. He was, uh, uh, like, looked like every other professor on that block except that he was black. So when you have those kinds of um, uh, incidents and largely um, supported by state authorities in one form or another, of course it intimidates uh, African Americans from wanting to uh, move to uh, predominantly white neighborhoods. That's why when you survey African Americans, they want to live in integrated neighborhoods, but their definition of integration is uh, a much higher one than whites who say they support integration. But um, we have a long history, as I say in this country, of, um, of preventing African Americans who want to move to uh, integrated neighborhoods from being able to do so. And uh, the evidence is, is pretty clear that there are many who want to do so, and they are not attempting to self-segregate by race. Uh, I, I would just say, you mentioned the percentages. I, I happen to look these up before the event. So roughly speaking, they say that, uh, at least historically, white people started to leave neighborhoods when they got to be about 30% African-American. Uh, the ideal, when you surveyed African-Americans about their ideal neighborhood, it's about 40% black. And so there you can see that there would be some self-segregation. I don't want to suggest that you would see anything like the segregation we have now. I think we, maybe we don't know, but I think absolutely the history you're talking about is hugely impactful. Um, but I, my point is also like what you asked about. We don't just segregate based on race, but unfortunately that's something because race is based on, or, our decision about race is something based on something incredibly superficial and immediate. You look at a person and you say, oh, well, I see the color of the skin. I can make all these conclusions about them. Which, of course, you can't, but people tend to do that. But this, this sort of self-segregation or self-selection of who you live with does go far beyond race. It's, and, and historically, you know, some of it's been about your language. It couldn't be about culture. I think you're absolutely right that a lot of it is about class. 
You know, um, if you see a house that you don't think is kept up to the standards that your class would be, you don't move to that place. So race is just one of the things that we use to self-select, and there is research to show that, but unfortunately, historically, it's been by far the worst. Our policies have been horrible. Um, and it is one that you, know, you can do in the most superficial way, in the most immediate way. And so it's, I think it's the biggest problem in terms of how people self-segregate. So there's a gentleman here in the middle. And so here what I'd like to do. I'm going to let him ask a question. I'm going to let you ask a question. And you try to do it quickly. And then we'll close out with them providing you an answer. So gentleman in the middle, a microphone's coming to your left. My name is Ronald Wilson. I'm with uh, Social Security. Um, the discussion today uh, is focused primarily on, uh, I'd say, the, the very copy of uh, school choice and housing and discrimination. But really, there's a much bigger uh, educational problem in America. Uh, it, it, it goes beyond just school choice and just local school districts. It, it goes to globalization. Uh, and, and, the, and the competition that we have as far as education and also jobs. Uh, the fact is, uh, uh, once you come, come through these elementary educations and, and go to higher education, the cost becomes prohibitive uh, because there's not a tax base to, uh, to uh, support the government's paying uh, for higher education. Uh, and therefore, you, you have greater competition around the world as far as uh, um, technological skills, uh, and because the, uh, the advances of technology, uh, it, it creates a okay, more sir. difficult time for anybody, regardless of your race mm -hmm. or where you live at, to get a job. So we, what we're going to have is, is, is possibly a glut of humanity who are highly educated, regardless of what, what kind of school you came out of, but you don't have a job. Okay. Good point. Ma'am? She's right next to you. She's going to ask a question. She's right behind you. And then we'll have the gentleman um, ask, and then we'll, we'll close. Okay. First of all, I want to just say thank you for the education. And I wanted to mention that I do think the whole um, organization that you started, um, Dr. Danielson, um, regarding uh, environmentalists and their approach to fewer cars, reducing CO2 emissions, et cetera, is one that I think is very positive. And Washington seems to be a good incubator to study in that regard. I do want to ask whether, in terms of charter schools and schools choice, is teacher training, recruitment, um, and the reward system any different um, in terms of how the outcomes are being um, researched or recorded in, say, charter schools versus traditional schools. And, um, you know, I think that there is some bonding that comes from a school that you choose. But, you know, what happens inside that school that makes the outcome so different, seemingly? Okay. The last question here in the front. Raise your hand. Thank you. Hi there, um, I'm Tyler Kateski from the Reason Foundation. And um, so Dr. McCluskey, I think you were mentioning in your speech about how uh, expanding school choice to private and parochial options would be an important part of this puzzle. And I was wondering if you or anyone else on the panel uh, would speak to the potential barrier of the Blaine Amendments um, in several states right now that prohibit uh, public money going to private schools and how that could impede 
this potentially going forward and especially like with the recent uh, ACLU challenge to Nevada's new ESA law. So I wanted to make sure that we captured those questions since we were filming this. Um, I will invite all of you to the lunch afterward because there'll be more dialogue. What I'll do is I'll start off with Dr. Danielson. I'll let him address uh, one, two, or three, uh, whichever question he'd like to. We'll then move over toward the end. If you can, try to keep the responses within a two-minute piece, and then we'll have a conversation uh, at lunch afterward. So we'll start with you and work our way down. Well, I can be fairly quick because while I understand the question, which is difference in teacher training and that sort of thing with charter schools and other schools, the truth of the matter is I have to be fairly humble. I study outside the walls of the school and not very much inside the walls of the school. Um, I will say this, the, the schools that, that I have interacted with, the ones that are successful, uh, they definitely know what they're about. And the thing that I've always found interesting is no two are the same. So the formula that's working at one school doesn't seem to be the formula that other people are choosing at all. Uh, they all have different formula, and, uh, and they seem to and they make it work. Now, there are a lot of charter schools that don't work, and in some cases they close. Uh, but the successful ones... Um, have a formula that they repeat year after year, and and uh, and then in many cases now they're beginning to branch into to small chains of schools. Uh, how they're doing it, I, I wish I knew. I can say they're they're doing it differently from one another. That's that's clear. We throw around the terms good schools and bad schools fairly uh, loosely. But the reality is that good schools tend to be schools, on average, that have uh, middle-class children who come to school well-prepared. And bad schools tend to be schools, on average, that have children from less educated families, poorer families, uh, more disadvantaged families who come to school unprepared. If you take the same teachers uh, who are successful in a highly... Uh, affluent communities and put them in uh, schools serving disadvantaged children, they become unsuccessful. There are many so-called bad schools that um, uh, add more value to what children bring to school than many so-called good schools that simply pass children through who come in at the top of the distribution in, in academic ability and leave at the top of the distribution in academic ability, and the schools do nothing to add to what they bring to. So I, I would be careful about assuming that, a good, that we know how to measure good schools and bad schools. Uh, uh, it's typically done by test scores, and we know that test scores is primarily a function of the social economic class of the children who enter into it. Um, there was something else I was going to say. And, uh, oh, yes, on charter schools. Um, for that reason, uh, what the uh, evidence shows is that on average, charter schools don't perform any better than regular public schools. Now, there are certainly some great charter schools. There are also great public schools. And um, again, we don't have adequate means of measuring what any particular school faculty or school uh, administration adds to the achievement of children who come into it. So we're really in a very poor position to um, argue about whether schools are better or worse um, and... Uh, given the, the social and economic characteristics of the children who enter them. Uh, I, I just conclude by saying again that the, the only 
I think the monstrable way of uh, raising the achievement of disadvantaged children is to make sure they're not concentrated in schools filled with disadvantaged children. And, um, you know, as I, I'm repeating myself now, as I said, in, in most major cities in the country, the only way to accomplish that is with residential desegregation. Uh, I'll try and go quick on each one. So, um, I, Mr. Wilson, I absolutely agree that college is too expensive. That's a big problem. Uh, I think we need to be hesitant when we say, though, that we are falling behind in the race and globalization. Uh, a lot of that is based on a, a thought that we don't produce enough scientists, uh, engineers, mathematicians, and, and there's actually a lot of debate about that. It suggests we do, and while absolutely our college system is way too expensive, cost prohibitive for a lot of people. It also, from my study, doesn't appear to be a lack of government funding. It, it, a lot of it appears to be too much subsidization that leads schools to raise their prices. That said, our higher ed system, while again, a, a huge uh, black hole for money, is something that uh, is probably the best in the world in terms of higher education, at least the top schools are. So. I, th I think you're certainly uh, on to something when you say that it's, it costs too much. We're not getting good, great outcomes from it, but I don't know that that's making us uncompetitive. I'm not sure the research uh, supports that necessarily. For charter schools, I think that, that Richard's absolutely right, that we talk about good and bad schools way too easily by saying, well, you get the high test scores, you're a good school, you get bad test scores, you're a bad school, and socioeconomic status of the students has a huge impact. That said, there have been studies done that, that at least try to control for socioeconomic status that find that, that autonomous schools, which could also include traditional public schools where the, the principal has a lot of autonomy, tend to do better because you can have a more coherent school that's run coherently, runs more efficiently because it doesn't have to answer to a whole bunch of different people and have uh, uh, suffer under big bureaucracy. And that's one of the reasons I think charter schools can tend to work somewhat better. But once you control for socioeconomic status, you don't see you know, huge differences typically in the sectors of schools. Um, and then in terms of the Blaine Amendment, the Blaine Amendment is absolutely right. These are amendments that were added typically to state uh, constitutions. There was a federal Blaine Amendment effort that, that failed, but basically says no uh, government money can go to a uh, sectarian school. There's a lot of history behind that, but what I think we found in, in many states are vouchers often lose under the Blaine Amendments um, because people say basically, look, the government has taken my tax dollars and sent them to people that could take it to a religious school, so that seems like uh, a subsidy of religion doesn't always lose. In the federal, the U.S. Supreme Court said so long as it's an independent decision of a parent, then it's totally fine. Um, states, though, are off sometimes interpreted more strictly than that. But we've seen that other ways of delivering education, scholarship tax credits, where basically a corporation or an individual donates to a scholarship organization that then gives out scholarships, typically low-income people, um, those have, have consistently been upheld because you get to choose whether or not you even donate and often to what scholarship granting organization you donate. And ESAs is what we're seeing in Nevada, so that's where government essentially gives you a bank account, puts money in a bank account that can be used maybe for private school tuition, but it could also be used for homeschooling expenses or in theory it could be used for buying a computer for your public school or for getting tutoring or all sorts of other things. Those have only been around for a few years. Nevada's hasn't even been put into 
fully been put into place. I guess it starts this year, but um, but it just, as you said, the ACLU announced it was suing, I think, last week. And so we don't have a big legal track record for that holding up. So these Blaine amendments are a problem. ESAs are probably more immune to them because you can use that money for lots of things other than private schools. But the if you accept that a voucher, the money goes to a religious school only as a consequence of the free decision of parents, then that should really hold up against Blaine Amendments, too. Um, it just hasn't always been the case. Race, housing, and education. Uh, 60 years ago, Brown v. Board of Education, too, said do it with all deliberate speed. In many areas, we're walking at a snail's pace to make that happen, but we're also seeing where opportunities within housing within education, and even the concepts of how we define race are changing with time. Uh, I remain an optimist that we will continue to move in the right direction. I think we heard three very different but very complementary approaches to how to address race, housing, and education. And with that, I'd like to give all of our speakers a hand and thank all of you for attending today.